Well, it's a delight to be here with you this morning and open up God's Word. Uh, Stuart is such a good friend, and I don't, I don't know Nathan as well as I know Stuart, but I know some of Nathan's friends, so <laughs> Stuart has been a real blessing in our lives, and uh, I know he's been a real blessing here at this church, and just delighted to be here and worship with you. This morning, I want us to look at uh, Psalm 121. It's not a, a long psalm, but uh, I think it is very impactful and full of promises to us. And to set it up, I want to share a story with you that goes like this. The author James Petty, in his book Step by Step, which is a book about God's will and guidance, he tells this story when he was on a, a missions trip, missions trip in South America. And uh, they did, a, I guess they went from spot to spot to spot as part of their ministry. And one day they woke up at 6 a.m. and they got onto this bus and they had to make a 12-hour trip to another town or another city for part of their ministry. And they had to go through the, the Andes Mountains there. So it's high up. And this road was just, we wouldn't call it a road. It would be like a path, I think. Uh, it was narrow. And you go through this uh, mountainous, high-altitude area. So much so that it was just on some spots on this road, if you looked out the window, it's just, you, it's just this thousand foot just drop off. You know, it was just very unnerving. And they're packed into this bus. They hit these, they had these switchbacks that they would come to. And the road was so pitiful, they'd have to come to the turn, they'd stop, honk the horn. If they didn't hear anything, then they would proceed on. And so he's on this bus, and it's just rattling along, probably, I can imagine. And he's looking out the window, and these huge drop-offs there. There's no guardrails, just nothing. And he, along the way, you would see these markers, every, just randomly spotted throughout along this path, along this road. And it took him a while to figure out what it was, and they were memorials that people had set up. And then he went a little bit further, it's like, oh, somebody passed away here something tragic tragic happened here at this spot and that unnerved him even more there's this tight road no guardrails just huge drop off you know the horn is every time he's trying to make a turn and then he got to be thinking you know I know there's no guardrails here but I know there are protection I know there is a rail that guards us along the way and he was thinking of God's providence. He was thinking about God's hand as they traveled along. How that that is more security for them on this journey than any kind of nicer road or a nice rail or anything like that. He just was sitting in God's providence and gave him a sense of confidence. Psalm 121, I think, is a psalm to look at from the perspective of God's providence in our lives. God's good providence in our lives. So let's read this passage together. Psalm 121. It's not a long, but it is powerful. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. 
Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Father God, we pray in these moments that you would give us ears to hear, to hear these promises, to hear this truth, but more than that, to see you and to know you more fully. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You know, this summer, we had the Summer Olympics, and so I've got a little Olympic story, I guess, to share with you. I read uh, earlier in the summer a book that goes by this title, The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Now, when I said I read this book, what I mean is I listened to it on Audible, and I heard about it or I saw a lot of positive press about it it's really good it's really engaging and so on and so forth you're probably like me and you have no idea about rowing and crew teams and all that other kind of stuff and so I was kind of a little apprehensive but it really surprised me and it really held my interest and the book is about what the title says it's about it's about these nine college-age students from Washington University who win gold in the 36 Olympics. Hitler's in the stands. It's in Berlin. It's right before World War II. And the author goes into all this, uh, a lot of detail about the sport and explains it. Whereas if, if you're like me and you just like, I, we're landlocked here. There's no water around us to do this kind of stuff. But he talks about how popular rowing was, particularly on the East and the West Coast, and these students that would participate in these events. And and all that went into it and how competitive it really was. And he would go into uh, detail about the times, depression era, and he would go into detail about some of the athletes that, were, that manned this crew team and the coaches that went with them and everything that took to get them to that moment to win gold. And it's an incredible story. But one of the athletes that the author pays a lot of attention to is a guy named Joe Rance. And again, this is the depression. And if I were to, to share with you the stories that he tells about Joe and his life leading up to the Olympics, it would just, I mean, you would just weep. I mean, it's just so sad. And part of that has to do with a lot of the, the times that he lived in. And you get an incredible motivational picture of what it took for him to, not only to be on the crew team, but just to get through college. His wife, or excuse me, his uh, mother died when he was very young. His dad later remarried uh, somebody younger, and they had their own children together. And it was a, the stepmom just didn't like Joe. One day, probably when he was a sophomore, junior in high school, he comes home, sees his family in the car, and his dad's up on the porch, and Joe is thinking, oh, dad's got a new job. It's depression. You just go where the work is and it looks like we're going somewhere else. And he gets up on the porch thinking he's just going to go get his stuff and, and go. But his dad says, you know, 
I'm, I'm, we're going to such and such a town. There's work for me there. But Joe, you've got to stay here. We're going to go ahead with, without you. You can live here in the house. Uh, your mother, stepmother just can't have you. And so there he is. He just abandoned. I mean, again, this was the 30s or so, and he's just left on his own living in this house. If he's got to figure out how he's going to eat, he's got to figure out how he's going to have money to get through school. And he does. And he winds up at the Washington University and he gets onto the crew team there. And he's like, all these guys are like 6'4", and they're just incredible athletes, as you can imagine, to compete at this level. And when Joe's team is on, they are strong and they are fast. But when they're off, their times are pitiful, and they are so inconsistent, and the, the coaches are like, what is the deal? And they can pinpoint some of the problem is, is with Joe. Like, he's just, when he's there, they're fast. When he's not... They're just a disaster, and he's just not in harmony. And they watch him, and they get to know him more, and finally they're able to sit down with him and say to him this. They say, Joe, you're, you're a gifted oarsman. Uh, you know how to, to row even when you are just dying. You know, just, your legs are just aching. You can still keep going. And when you're on, it's great, but when you're off, it's disaster. And when you're off, it looks like you just row with such anger. You're just thrashing at the water with these oars, and it throws everybody off. And he says, Joe, that, that rowing is like a symphony. It's, it's like there's got to be harmony. It's got to be everybody working together to achieve speed and strength and, and to win. And then he says this to Joe. He says, Joe, when you really start trusting those other boys... You will feel a power at work within you that is far beyond anything you've ever imagined. And his coach's point is, you've got to trust the other men in that boat. And you've got to open up your heart to them. Psalm 121 is an invitation to us to open up our hearts to him. To trust him fully. And if we don't do that, then this psalm is really not going to make that much sense to us. It's not going to be powerful in our lives. That The promises and the, the richness of this psalm are not going to really engage and move us at the end of the day. And so what I want to do with this psalm is give you two main points or two reasons why it is that we can trust God and open ourselves up to him, particularly his providence in our lives. And they are these. Stuart said I could only do two things, two points. The first is God's providence is trustworthy. And the second thing is that God's providence is personal. What I mean by God's providence is trustworthy is in part reflected in verses 1 and 2. The psalmist writes, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now picture the psalmist writing this. His eyes are on the hills. And there's some debate, I guess, commentators have. Is, you know, when he's looking to the hills, does he see trouble? Does he see, you know, threats? Does he see danger? Does he see robbers? Is that a place to get away from? Or when he looks up into the hills, does he see safety? Does he see security? Does he see 
refuge? Is it a, a good place or is it a bad place? We're not really sure, but either way, I don't think it matters much because of the question that he asks. Where does my help come from? And for this psalm to make sense to us, and really for the Christian life and the gospel to make sense to us, we've got to settle that question. Where is my help going to come from? At the end of the day, ultimately in my life, where is my help going to come from? Is it coming from me? That was Joe Rance. It's like the only thing I have that I can depend upon is myself. If I don't make it happen, it's not going to happen. Everybody else has let me down. But the psalmist is saying, and the Bible says to us, it's not about you at the end of the day. Your help has to be from the Lord. It has to be from God himself. That's just the, the nature of the gospel. It's the nature of Christianity. It's the nature of the Bible at work in our lives is to be a people who need help because we have hardship, because we have difficulty, because we have circumstances that are just beyond us that we can't figure out, respond to, deal with on our own. And we need the help of the Lord. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He says, my creator, my creator God, that is the one who helps me. The one who made the stars, the one that, that, that made us and makes everything that we see, that sustains all things, that is my help. You know, our family enjoys superhero movies as much as the, the next person. And so you've got all these stories about these, these men and women who are incredibly strong, or fast, or powerful, they're, they're all brave, they're all courageous, they all have something that, that puts them over the top against their enemy. But with each one of those superheroes, I've never seen one of them that's able to create something from nothing. That's our creator God. He's able to create something from nothing. He is all-powerful, he's all-wise, he's strong, he's, he's present everywhere. And he's our creator that knows us. And the reason that is so important for us to see is one author highlights for us. If he is the creator God and he's made everything, it means that he's also a God of providence. It means that he is lovingly, thoughtfully, wisefully, that's not even a word, engaged with his creation. Engaged with what he has put together. He hasn't abandon it he hasn't just I've created it now you're all are on your own to figure things out and if it's just sink or swim time I'll just be here and, and watch he's a creator God providentially acting and working in our lives James Packer gives this definition of providence he says providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces and what he means by blind forces is is fortune change luck fate those words are, are not in the Bible. It's not our worldview. All that happens to them, the believer, is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that an all is for one spiritual and eternal good. Everything that happens in our lives is God's providence. Even our mistakes, even our bad decisions, even our faithlessness, our sin, it's, it's God uses it all for his glory. 
we gave a statement, we read a statement together a moment ago of, of providence from Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There is no accident in your life. There's no oops. God is, God is not surprised. He's not off guard by what he's seeing, by what you are experiencing. It's there for a reason. Sometimes we find out directly, quickly what that reason is. Sometimes it's years later. Many times, I guarantee it will be just in eternity when we understand why God did what he did. And as you know, God's providence doesn't mean that everything is good. Everything is going to be easy. I'm going to be spared from all kinds of things. Sometimes God's providence is just rough in our life. It's difficult. God senses things that are just overwhelming for us. I mean, it's a lie when we, people say, you know, God never sends you something that you can't handle on your own. It's a lie. We, we often find ourselves in situations where I can't do this on my own. God, your providence is so rough in my life. One illustration that helps me to, to understand that, God's goodness and God's grace in my life, and yet there's, there's difficulty. Imagine you're at a party and uh, you've got a friend with you, and uh, this friend is, he's really going after the adult beverages. I mean, he's just going hard, and he's the one that drove you there, and you're like, you know, maybe I need to get his keys. So you go up to your buddy and say, hey man, let, you, let me have the keys for the rest of the night, and I'll take care of us. Because you're loving him, you're, you're caring for him, you're concerned for him, you have his good in mind. How do you think that friend's going to respond? Is he going to be like, you know what, you're so right, and I'm having a great time, too good of a time, so here you go. He's probably going to push back on you. He's probably going to give you grief. It's like, you know, who do you think you are? I'm fine, so on and so forth, and it's probably going to be difficult to get those keys away from him. But after the night's over with, I guarantee you there'll be a day when he comes up to you the next week or next month or sometime later on, he says, you know what, you remember that night? You took the keys. So I'm so thankful that you did that. I'm so grateful that you did that for me because I was a mess and I was going in the wrong direction. And you showed me love, you showed me care. You were kind of rough with me, but I see why you did that. God's providence says to us, this psalm says to us that God is your keeper. He doesn't sleep. He's not distracted. You know, he says, I'm going to watch over you. And you may hit rough spots, you may hit difficult spots, you may be hitting spots right now where you're just completely overwhelmed and just at a loss. But God's providence means in the midst of all that, you're never separated from God, from his love, and from his hand in your life. God's providence is trustworthy. The second thing is this, God's providence is personal. When I say that God's providence is personal, what I mean is that his power, his presence is so close to us that we take it personally, that we see it as personal for us. They're just not sayings, they're not happy thoughts, but who God is and his promises, we take those things to heart and they functionally affect who we are and how we respond to life how we respond in our relationships. 
They're not just temporary, that's really nice, and maybe I'll memorize that, but they give us change. They, give, they, they anchor us. And this is why I, I say that. The word Lord is used at least five times in this passage. And that's the title that he uses to address God. And that Lord is so, that word Lord, is, that name for God is so significant because it's God's covenant name. It's a reminder that I have bound myself to you. You are my son. You are my daughter. I belong to you. I love you with a steadfast love. Not an inconsistent love, not a love when you're doing well, then I'll love you. Not a conditional love, but a steadfast love. No matter where you're at, I've bound myself to you. I love you like that. And if you look at the psalm from like kind of a, a bird's eye view, verses 1 and 2 are different from verses 3 through 6. Verses 1 and 2, it's almost, one author talks about how there, it's like the voice of inexperience. Like, I'm, I'm looking, where are you? You've, you've got to help me. But once you get to verses 3 and beyond, it's the voice of experience. It's the voice of confidence. You are my keeper. You don't slumber. You don't sleep. You watch over me. You're my shade. You are all these things for me. It's a, it's a sense of confidence because he knows him personally. The word keeper is used six times. And the Hebrew definition of keeper means exactly what you think it means. It means he keeps me. He watches over. He guards. He attends to me carefully. He protects me. Probably the classic metaphor, illustration in the Bible is how God is a shepherd over his people, with his people. That he's providing their, their physical needs, their, their, their food, their drink. He watches them as they go forth, in and out. He protects them from, from bad things. When they wander off, he's quickly to go after a sheep and bring them back in. If God is our keeper, the psalmist is saying, then you can know rest. You can know rest not you can know that you can have a sense of strength in the midst of hardship in the midst of difficulty because God is watching over you God is your keeper not your bank account not your friends not your your skill set not your job your keeper is the Lord himself and that is the place of ultimate rest he's going to watch over you next week He's going to watch over you at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, when we get to Easter, next summer, when you're on vacation, when school is in, when school is out, he is there. When you're in the hospital, he's keeping you. When you're healthy and on vacation, he's keeping you. When you're depressed, he is your keeper. When you're full of sin, he is your keeper. When you're unfaithful, he is still your keeper, still watching over you. In the next stage of life, he's still going to be your keeper. No matter where you are, he is still going to be there because he is your covenant Lord. He watches over and he loves you unconditionally. Yes, you will be, meet difficulty. You will meet suffering. You will meet hardships, physical hardships, bad reports from the doctor, pushback at work because of your beliefs, indifference from your family, from your belief in the gospel and how seriously you, you love the Bible, difficulty with, with children who are just not making the, the best decisions. But in the midst of 
whatever hardship you experience, God is saying, nothing will separate me from you. I will watch you. I see you. I know you. I'm there for you. And that's what's so beautiful about the Bible. It's so honest. One of the most popular Psalms, Psalm uh, 23, that the Lord is my shepherd and that he's in this valley of darkness. There's a sense of honesty there. Things can be difficult, but nothing will separate you from him. So here's the point of application. One point of application. What we do with this psalm is we pray it into our hearts. To apply this psalm means that we've got to pray it into our hearts. And the reason I say that is that the, the, the promises, that the, the providential care of God in our lives has to be the lens by which we see our circumstances, how we see ourselves, how we see our marriages, our, our parenting, our work, our community, different races. That's, that's how we see it from the perspective of God's providence. And why do we need to pray that into our hearts is because how do we operate? So often we operate out of fear. We operate out of anxiety. We operate out of this all depends upon me. God, you're, you're really, God, I knew it. You're not going to be there for me. It's our natural kickback tendency to operate and to view things with a sense of fear. It's why we can't sleep at night. It's, it's why we just try to control things ourselves and not let anybody else help us because we're operating out of this sense of fear. And the only way to, to move beyond that is to take this psalm and to pray its promises into our hearts, to meditate on it, to spend time with it. So we start to see ourselves and we see our circumstances through God and through his promises. Now think about this too. We've talked about God's providence, God's in control of everything. You know, even my good things I do, the mistake I make, God is still in control. You know, there is, it's just, there's no, you know, if I do this, then he's going to do this in my life. He's, it's, everything's with him. But this is a psalm. This is from the prayer book of God's people. We pray this back to God. We pray this for ourselves. And some of you are thinking, why should I pray? What good does it do to pray? Does it, it, does it even, I don't feel like I'm doing anything when I pray. It doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel very practical for me. And then I think about the New Testament, like Jesus saying, I, before you even ask anything, I know what you're going to ask. So why should I pray? If God's going to work providence in my life, if this situation is going to happen, why do I even need to pray? What good does it do? Well, for starters, God says, Pray. He doesn't say it, he commands us. He tells us as his people to pray, to be a people of prayer. And I think part of the reason he wants to pray, this is just one answer, there's many answers, is because he wants us to be in relationship with him. We have two children. And when one of them was younger, they were at the age where it was like one, and um, they should be starting to use words. You know, not not expecting to speak in complete sentences or anything like that, but just communicating better. And they weren't doing that. And they were just kind of making noises and pointing. And we wanted more than that. And they love puzzles. And as all kids do, they love to eat. And so when we were doing a puzzle, 
he couldn't, they couldn't just point and grunt. They had to use words. He had to, they had to say, please. Or when we were eating, they had to say, he, they just couldn't say, you know, point and make noises. And it would have been easy for us just to give it to him, just so you'd, they'd stop doing that. But we forced him. It's like, you've got to use words. And we're not trying to manipulate them. Not like we're trying to, to make them do this kind of trick, like you're teaching a dog, you know, I'm not going to give you food until you give me your paw. But we wanted them to talk because we wanted to have a relationship with them. We wanted them to know us and us to know them. We wanted it, wanted it to be personal. And God commands us to pray. And we pray his promises would be true for us and for those around us and those that we love because God answers prayer because God works through our prayer, because God changes us when we pray and when we engage his promises and we ask those things to be at work in our lives. Let me close with this. The psalmist is looking up to the hills and to close with this, what is his focus? His focus is on the Lord. His focus is not on relief. His focus is not on answers to the situation. His focus is saying, my refuge, my strength is the Lord himself because he's my keeper, because he's never asleep, he's my shade, he's all these things for me. That's my refuge. And when we find ourselves in a position where we're asking God, you've got to help me, what we quickly tend to do is, my, and we're not saying this directly, but we're saying in effect, God, my strength is going to be you answering this prayer. The solution to this situation, the solution to my fear, my anxiety, my lack of wisdom, that answer is going to be my refuge. It's going to be my strength. It's what I'm going to be dependent upon. But the psalmist is saying, no, regardless of what happens, my strength is the Lord himself. His promises Yes, he's going to work in your life. Yes, he's going to provide answers. But at the end of the day, that's not my refuge. That's not what I'm looking for, God. I need you in this moment in my life. Perhaps you've met somebody that you know that they are, they're in a hard time. They're a bad situation. And they're not particularly religious. They don't really go to church. But they're easy for them to cry out, God, would you help me? And it's easy to come to say, you know, hey, I'll, I'll pray for you. But there's a difference for us as believers, somebody who takes Psalm 121 and the story of the gospel seriously into heart, is that these promises are not just out there, but they are for us personally. Like, I personally believe these things for myself. They're not just words, but he is my refuge. He is my strength. He is the one that watches over me, and I can trust him. I think that the benediction we'll use later on, I think, is from Numbers chapter 6. I'm sure you've heard it before. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have you ever asked yourselves why? Why is it that God can keep me? Why is it God want to show his face to me? Why does God want to be gracious to me? I mean, I know my sin. I know my shame. I know, my, I know what a wreck I am. Why would God want to do that for me? 
It's because you know the story of the New Testament. You know the story of Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason God keeps you, the reason God can put his face upon you is because Christ took the curse, because Christ was turned away from you. And it's the reason why we can look to him to be our ultimate source of security and rest. We can know that he is our keeper because he gave up his son for you and for me. It's why we can look past our circumstances to say, God, I know you love me because of your son. And I know these promises about you being my keeper, being my shade, being my helper and not being asleep are so true because you sacrificed your one and only son, your beloved son for me when I did not deserve it. Let's pray together. Father God, as we uh, come to you and we reflect upon this psalm, I pray that we would be a people that prayed into our hearts and our lives. We confess that we just operate out of fear, out of anxiety, and those things can be rooted just in our lack of trust of you. Father God, give us eyes to see. You are good and you are gracious. Pray that you would continue to be our help, our source of refuge and strength and our keeper. And we would know rest. We would know your anchoring love in our own lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.